Hello, I'm Sam Leith. I'm sorry Book Club has been on such a long hiatus over the Christmas season, but we return to full normal service next week. In the meantime, here's another from the archives. It's Hadley Freeman's discussing her remarkable family memoir, House of Glass. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Hadley Freeman, whose new book is called House of Glass, The Story and Secrets of a 20th Century Jewish Family. Hadley, this book begins as, well, many of its type do, with a dusty shoebox in a closet. (laughs) It does indeed. Tell me about the shoebox. What did you find in it? I literalised the trope there. So (laughs) I was going through my grandmother's closet about 10 years after she died. My my uncle moved into her old apartment, so he'd kept all of her stuff. And I thought about writing about her relationship with fashion. I was at that point a fashion writer on, sorry to tell this to spectator listeners, the Guardian newspaper. And I thought I could write about her relationship with clothes and how she used clothes as part of her identity. And I just saw the shoebox at the back of the closet and thought it would just have another pair of you know old shoes in it as you would and opened it and it was full of letters and albums and photos from the 1920s up to the 1980s um, photographs that were clearly taken in a concentration camp prison plates a drawing by Picasso kind of shoved in as an afterthought at the bottom <laughs> uh, denunciation letters written during the war in French and at that point I thought oh bloody hell it's gonna be more than a fashion piece isn't it yeah <laughs> let's start with your grandmother I mean it ends up being a book that's about really quite a big family. Mm. And, you know, it goes from the sort of Polish shtetl to the Parisian salons to Long Island. It's all, you know, it's a kind of history of 20th century Jewry and mm. capsule. But Sala is your point of entry. She's this, you know, dandy French lady living in Long Island. Right, yeah. right. So I met my grandmother when she was in her 70s. She was this very beautiful, melancholic Jewish grandmother in Miami Beach, where she then lived with my grandfather. And to me, she was always incredibly French. You know, she would always talk like, oui, 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 oh la la, da, da, da. I mean, she was my image of Frenchness. When I saw the film Gigi with Leslie Carroll on the MJ musical, to me, she was uh, Hermione Gingold in it. That's what my grandmother was like, but very chic. And whereas all other grandmothers I knew, you know, would bake cakes and, you know, kind of wear frumpy clothes, my grandmother hardly ate. She would wear sort of Chanel-style jackets. She collected little Dior hands bags. She was not very grandmotherly, but she was very French. But she was also quite sad. There was something about her that was very detached. This was obviously not the life she wanted. And I found that very difficult to handle as a child. I didn't understand how grown-ups could be sad. I thought grown-ups were just there to, you know, buy me ice cream, really. Yeah, and there's this kind of piercing moment where it's one of the earliest memories you describe is a trip to Paris with, like, The whole family. I think it's your first trip to Paris, isn't it? It's my first trip to Europe. Um, So I was born and grew up in New York, and my father wanted me to know the French side of my family. So my grandmother, Sala, was his mother. So we all flew to Deauville, which is this uh, little seaside town in Normandy. My grandmother came with us from Miami, and her two older brothers were meeting us there. And we arranged to meet everybody in in the hotel restaurant. And we were waiting, and we were waiting for my grandmother. I was meeting these two old men called Jack, uh, sorry, called Alex and Henri, and Henri's wife, Sonia. And we were waiting for my grandmother, and suddenly I noticed uh, Sala standing outside the room, and I look at her, and I realize she's watching us crying. And then she turns around and runs away. And um, well, let's start, go back maybe to the beginning, you know, how she ended up 
where she was and how she was. I mean, it's a story really of four siblings, isn't it? Exactly. And I mean, I knew nothing before I started. I really didn't. I didn't know that there had been a third brother, Jacques, who I'd never met. And I certainly didn't know that my grandmother was actually Polish. I mean, like I said, I thought she was just purely French. But it turned out they were all born in this tiny town in what is now Poland, but what was then Austro-Hungary, Austro-Hungarian Empire called Sharnov, which is just 18 kilometers from Auschwitz. And they were called back then Yehuda, Jakob, Sender and Sala. Once they fled to Paris, they changed their names to French names. But they grew up in this tiny little shtetl. It was like something out of an Isaac Bashev singer story, Fiddler on the Roof. And they led this very poor, peaceful life. And then World War I started and everything immediately went terrible. Their father went off to war. His lungs were irrevocably gassed. He never recovered. He died after he got home. And then the pogrom started. Poland was liberated. Poland had obviously been, had suffered enormously during the war. It was economically, you know, destroyed. It, you know, people had marched back and forth across it. And as happens, people were looking for someone to blame, and in this case, they blamed the Jews. And so pogroms started across the country where Catholics were rampaging through um, Jewish towns and destroying Jewish businesses, killing the Jews, and the first town that had a pogrom was Sharnov. You describe, or somebody, I mean, you have a first-hand account of them, it's like their neighbours, it's the people they really knew. It, it was absolutely the people they knew. So one of the other pieces of luck that I encountered during the research of this book was I found my great-uncle Alex's unpublished memoir, which was also hidden in my grandmother's apartment. And he describes this uh, pogrom that they all endured, the first one. He was then, what, 10 He, was, he was 12 years 12, old. Yeah. And it was the three boys and Salah hiding under the bed with their mother. And um, Alex was 12 years old, and he could hear all this noise outside, and he thought, I'm not going to hide like a coward. And he got up from under the bed and ran outside to try to fight against the poles. And he saw their faces. He describes them as looking twisted like beasts in the moonlight. And he looks closer, and he realized they're his teachers, and they're his neighbors, and they're the men who bought sewing machines from his father in the marketplace. And he knew them. And he writes in his memoir, it was at that moment my childhood ended. I never trusted anyone again. And so when they got a bit older, they... Well, fled, pretty much. They fled. So they all eventually left Poland. They all went to Paris, where their cousins, the Ornsteins, had already... Um, were already living. And the irony is that the pogrom actually saved their lives. If they hadn't left, they'd have definitely been killed in World War II. The whole of Sharnov's Jewish population, which was 55% of the, of the town, were killed in World War II, obviously, because it was so close to um, to um, Auschwitz. And if you go to Sharnov now, there's still no Jews. And when I went with my father in 2018, uh, we found the house where my grandmother and her brothers lived, and right next door to it, the building was covered in anti-Semitic graffiti. So it's still this, you know, this problem, even though it's 18 kilometers down the road from Auschwitz, people are still very anti-Semitic. So they all fled to Paris in the 1920s, which is where huge numbers of Eastern European Jewish immigrants were going. They were going either to Warsaw, to Paris, or to New York. And the reason so many went to Paris is because it was further away from Eastern Europe than Warsaw, not as far away as New York, and it already had a good Jewish, good-sized Jewish population. It also didn't have any quotas yet on the numbers of Jews allowed in, unlike the UK and the US. Also, France had as well, suffered enormously in World War One, and it desperately needed a male workforce. So it was encouraging a lot of these immigrants to come, particularly after the Dreyfus Affair. France had really had this reckoning about anti-Semitism in the country. It was really abated. They wanted these Jews to come to the country. They wanted them to help in the industry. They reduced the number of years foreign Jews had to be in the country to be naturalized, so it was easier for Jews to start working. So the Glass family all went, and uh, Jacques started working as a tailor in the Marais, like a lot of Jewish immigrants. On uh, Henry eventually joined him, 
and, and he, they set up business together. Alex, in characteristic, pugnacious style, refused just to be a tailor. He wanted to be a couturier, like Lanvin, and he set up a couture salon at the age of only 20. And my grandmother, Sala, was in and out of sanatoriums because she suffered from pleurisy. And eventually, when she got home in her 20s, she started working as a textile designer. Yeah. Now, these four siblings, I mean, it almost feels as if they're a sort of, like, paradigmatic kind of split for different Jewish reactions to anti-Semitism. You've mm. got, well, in Sarah, you've got flight, you've got compliance in Jacques, which has mm. a sort of tragic mm. outcome. You know, Alex is a sort of defiance, really, mm. but, but you know, negotiation. And then, you know... Henri hides. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if I was writing this as a novel, I feel like no one would believe it. But their four reactions were the four reactions that were available to Jews. So first of all, Henri, when he was in Paris, he tried to assimilate very well. He wanted to be French. Then when the war started, he hid. He got a uh, false ID. He in- had invented this amazing machine. He was a brilliant engineer that allowed him to shrink documents to save them from Nazis and the Vichy government. And he traveled around France in secret all through the war, shrinking towns, documents, people's bank records, building plans for ports, the, port, uh, the Havre port, for example, so that after the war was finished, he was, he was able to help these towns rebuild and help people get their money back. But he was hiding. Jacques believed that if he followed the rules, nothing bad would happen to him. So as soon as the Jews were told in 1940, they had to register. He, unlike anyone else in his family, went off and registered. He was then rounded up in one of the first roundups, sent off to a French concentration camp, Pitivier. Alex was completely defiant. He went off to the Foreign Legion, fought in the Narva campaign, got a bronze star, then went down to the south of France, was living this glamorous life with Christian Dior, who he worked with, and uh, this other man, Jean Setour, who's possibly his lover. When the Nazis came to the south of France, um, Alex was in a nightclub one evening, and the, the nightclub started playing German music. And this was like the worst row over the jukebox ever. You yes, know I mean? quite. <laughs> and also straight out of Casablanca, which makes yeah. it even weirder. And Alex stood up and said, stop playing this Nazi shit. You need to play the Marseillaise. And the Nazis came up to him and said, we know where you live, Alex. We're coming to get you. And the next day they came. Well, one of them pulled a gun on him. Pulled they? a gun in the nightclub, nightclub. and Alex laughed at him and said, look at this man waving a gun around women. And Alex left the nightclub. His mother was living with him. He incredibly managed to stash his mother, who not only couldn't speak French, but insisted on on only keeping kosher, um, stashed his mother with one of his clients, and incredibly, she survived the war. It's sort of astounding, this, you know, Polish, Yiddish-speaking, little old Jewish lady who keeps kosher somehow survived the whole of the, the war in occupied France. In France. You know. and, and, no, and there are no records of her. No one knew she was there. I mean, she was just hidden in this room the whole time keeping kosher. Alex, meanwhile, was arrested the next day and put on the train to another um, French concentration camp called Drancy. And Salah, well, she had the option that was basically the only thing available to women then. She couldn't fight in the war. She, I mean, there were women in the resistance, but not as many as men, of course. So instead she got married. She was tricked into marriage by Alex, who just wanted to get her out of the country. Well, there was this kind of absolutely heartbreaking story in her, because she, she, you know, it complicates this idea that, you know, we were the lucky ones, we got out. Absolutely. And particularly for Jewish Americans, we are all raised thinking anyone who comes to America, it's the promised country. Immigrants are so happy. They kiss Ellis Island when they get off the boat. That was very much not the case with my grandmother. She was 26. She was living the life of her dreams in Paris. She was engaged to a socialist dentist, planning her wedding. One night, Alex comes around for dinner and says, my darling sister, I, my wonderful friend from America, very dear friend has come to visit. I've brought him around for dinner. 
dinner. He's a millionaire. He lives on Park Avenue. He runs a fashion company. You must meet him. In comes this American guy with a mustache. They all speak Yiddish to each other because he doesn't speak French. They don't speak English. And in the middle of dinner, he says, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Please come to America with me and marry me. My grandmother just thought, who is this ugly John Wayne guy? Who's this tacky guy? Of course not. I'm marrying my lovely socialist dentist. Dinner ends. Alex turns to her and says, you are marrying him. You have to marry him. The Nazis are coming. I know they're coming. What's happened in Poland is going to happen here. This guy is incredible. You will never get a better offer. Eventually, with enormous reluctance, my grandmother goes to America. He meet, the, This American meets her at the dock. And on the drive from the dock to his house, she realizes a few things pretty quickly. One, this guy doesn't know Alex. Alex had literally met him that day in Paris. He is not a millionaire. He does not live in New York. He does not work in fashion. He runs a gas station on Long Island. And that is how my grandparents met. And Alex, which is kind of extraordinary, doesn't even, I think you say, mention this. You know, he saves his sister's life. In this. I mean, do you think he was, in his memoir, this is not something he even mentions. Is it you think that he was kind of ashamed because he knew that he had condemned her to some sort of unhappiness or was it what what do you think he always loved my grandmother's uh, grandfather Alex and my grandfather were really great friends so I don't think he necessarily felt guilty about it I think he knew she was unhappy and this was not a story he could spin positive that positively in his memoir but I think the main thing is Alex was a wonderful man I knew him well he died in 1999 when I was 21 but he was very self-obsessed in a lot of ways. And his memoir is about himself. And so what he wrote in his memoir is what he was doing during the war. What my grandmother was up to was kind of of no concern to him. You know, OK, he got her out fine. That's good. He tried to get his mother naturalized. Didn't really work. But, you know, he, he managed to stash her somewhere. But what he was writing about was his adventures with Chagall, his adventures with Christian Dior, him in the resistance, him escaping from the train to the camps. Like, that's what he wrote about. Yeah, I mean, Alex, in a way, he is the sort of, not quite the centre, but he's the most fascinating character in the book and the most complex one, I think. It's it? true, it's true. And it was hard when I started writing it because I really initially wanted to just write about my grandmother and then it quickly became clear that I have to write about the whole family. And I was a bit worried that Alex would overshadow everything, mainly because he was overshadowing things for me because his life is so incredible. And there were times when I thought, should I just actually be writing about Alex? But I think kind of they all work together because Alex's life was all about outward show and drama. I mean, Alex, you know, he's arrested by Brunner. He's put on the train. He's going to the camp to Drancy. He knows his brother Jacques has already been killed in Auschwitz at this point. He's thinking that he's going to be condemned to his brother's death. He happens to look up. He sees a hole in the I thought, ceiling. I thought they only found out that Jacques had been killed later. They or... found, they were confirmed, but he knew, he but knew. He knew that Jacques had gone, was yeah. in Pithiviers, and he had an idea of what was happening because of his contacts in the resistance. He didn't know for sure yeah. but he had a good idea of what was going on and he knew Jacques was in the camps and so Alex happened to look up sees this hole in the ceiling of the train Alex was very small he's five foot two he got his friend Jacques yes, that obviously bugged him all his life all you? his life he's constantly going on about how how handsome all his tall brothers are and and obviously I think it was a lot of overcompensation for him that he was so kind of you know sort of blustersome and pugnacious that he because he was five foot two and he saw this hole in the ceiling. He got his friend Jacques Schwab, Ericourt, to pick him up. His friend picks him up. Alex punches through this hole in the ceiling and got his friend to propel him out. So Alex is thrown out of this train. That's right. 90 kilometers an hour. 90 kilometers an hour. His ribs are broken. His face is all ripped up. Some communist railway workers find him. They hide him in a pile of manure because they know the Nazis are too vain about their uniforms to look through manure. They give him a little railway costume to keep him hiding. And then someone, and I didn't find out until quite later, helps Alex hide out in the Auvergne. Yeah, now you didn't believe half the things in his book. And there's this kind of extraordinary bit where you're going, 
could he really have jumped off the train? Did he make that bit up? Yeah, well, I mean, all this, this was one of the very few stories that Alex would tell us was that he escaped from the train. So we all knew he escaped from the train, we escaped from the train. But then we also thought, escapes from the train like how can you escape from the train so I found the records of all the people who got off at Drancy you can find them very easily in the National Archives in Paris and Alex's name isn't there okay well that proves he didn't get off at Drancy fine I also know who survived I'm you know I know he doesn't go to the camps and die but did he get on well it turns out you can find that out too so I went down to Nice and there are the records of everyone who got on and there he is he did get on he didn't get off and Sarge Klarsfeld um, has written a little bit about people who escaped from the train Sarge Klarsfeld the great um, holocaust historian in France um, writes a lot about Nice because he was there as a child and it turns out there were 93 people who escaped from the train and Alex is one of them wow I hope all of them met communist railway workers. Yes, quite, <laughs> quite. I mean, you know, in some cases you think, well, okay, well, maybe some of them died and were thrown off the train. You know, the people get on and don't get off. But there were definitely people who, who escaped from the train. I, funnily enough, my father's best friend, his father also escaped from a train, but he was caught and put back on. So, I mean, there are lots of different narratives. It's just incredible that Alex escaped. But Alex's story, I mean, what's so fascinating about his wartime story, I think, you know, apart from the obvious daring do, is the way in which it involves a kind of negotiation and, you know, as you say, up until he starts getting, I assume, drunkenly frisky in a nightclub, <laughs> you know, he's actually doing OK. He's allowed to move his fashion house and keep it open in Cannes. Mm. You know, there's even hanging over him the suspicion of some sort of collaboration Absolutely. going on there. And he had this sort of powerful patron who was apparently playing absolutely both sides against the middle. It's true. And what, the thing that really fascinated me, fascinated me about Alex's story is that it shows so much of the shifting alliances in the Vichy government, which I knew nothing about. One of the things I feared when I started researching this was that I was going to find out that Alex was a collaborationist. And it turns out there were people in Vichy who were helping him. The reason is, it's not that Alex was a collaborationist. It's that a lot of people in Vichy, yes, they were anti-Semitic, but they were anti-Semitic in the way that they wanted to protect France's cultural identity. They didn't want these kind of outsider Jewishness invading it, but they also definitely didn't want outsider Germanness invading it. So if they had a Jew like Alex who had fought for France, had got a bronze star in the Narvik campaign, they would help him because he was fighting for France. So there was one guy, Xavier Vallat, who was in charge of the Aryanization of businesses in France, in other words, taking businesses away from the Jews, who allowed Alex to open his salon in the south of France, even though many other people protested, because Xavier Vallat was an anti-Semite, but he was mainly concerned about protecting the sanctity of France. He was not interested in these Germans. And actually that eventually worked against him. Three months after he helped Alex, he was kicked out by the Germans. This guy called Louis Darquet-Pelopois was put in, who was a full-throated Nazi supporter. And weirdly, this strange coincidence, Melvin Bragg has actually written a lot about Louis Darquet de Pellebois because his daughter then became a psychoanalyst in this country and caused enormous damage among some of her patients, including Melvin Bragg's late wife. And he himself has talked about that. It's a side story. It's very hard not to get distracted by side stories when telling this kind of story. And and with Alex's main patron was this guy called General Perret, whose daughter was a client of Alex's when Alex ran his salon in Paris. General Perret was very, very high up in Vichy. But again, he was someone who was concerned about the sanctity of France. He was not interested in Nazi identity. So he was helping Alex and it was it was actually him in the end who helped stash Alex away in this in this farmhouse in the Auvergne, which eventually I found and found the hidden room that Alex lived in. And Perret had been I mean it wasn't just Alex he helped. I mean he seems to have helped 
a lot of the resistance and the collaborators, even as he was in charge of cracking down on the resistance. It's it, a kind of it's extraordinary c- story. completely amazing. And I had no idea about it. I eventually found the records for his trial that were in Poitiers. And there were all these Jews standing up saying, this man helped me, this man got me false ID, this man did this, this man did that. While at the same time, this man was in charge of rounding up specific resistance groups. He was also helping people connect it to those resistance groups. In the end, he was sentenced for, you know, for um, in the in the Operation Legal when France was pretending there was only a few bad apples who'd been working with the Nazis. So he was condemned in the end for working with the Nazis, but eventually he was he was quietly excused. Yeah, I mean, the question of you know how much France, France you say, is sort of getting to grips mm. a bit now with the extent of you know how much voluntary oh yeah you know work they did to put down the Jews in. Mm the war and how much they you know the Nazis didn't even have to ask them half the time no they I mean they went further than the Nazis asked you know the Nazis never asked them to send Jewish babies children and sick people to the camps and they did and Vichy's excuse for that was by throwing more foreign Jews under the bus than that would save the French Jews and to an certain a certain extent they were kind of right you know a lot of French Jews did survive the majority of French Jews did survive but you cannot outpace fascists and you know it's, it's never going to be a good look and a lot a lot of people died particularly a lot of children died who really didn't have to. Yeah. You also, there's a, quite a kind of sort of a vibration of anger when you go and visit Auschwitz as well. <laughs> I mean, what, what's interesting really is is the difference between Poland and France and their feelings about their collaborationism during the war. I mean, one example of how things are changing in France is when I went to Pitivier, the French concentration camp where Jacques went, when I went in 2012, there was no memorial, really. There was no sign. It just looked like this dusty French road. Now there is a memorial. There's a whole museum. So that's changed in the past eight years. You go to Poland now. Even just five years ago, Poland was very open about its collaborationism to a certain extent during the war. Obviously, Poland was invaded, but Poland had been a very, very anti-Semitic country. It's why my grandmother and her brothers had left in the first place. And there, you know, there are stories of Polish heroism, but these are exceptions. You know, to a large extent, Poles are pointing out Jews in the street and saying Juden, Juden, to the Germans. You go to Auschwitz now, since the Law and Justice Party is in power, and the emphasis there is very much on Polish suffering. And it is true that seventy thousand Poles did die at Auschwitz, but over a million Jews did, and there. Is a strong suggestion of, at the very least, parity of the suffering there. And if you take the official tour, they'll show you where the poles were killed. They won't show you, for example, the gas chambers. They'll show you the, you know, for want of a better word, cabins where the Jews were living. So you have this strong impression that the Jews were being, you know, sent there and then lived there. When of course the vast majority were immediately sent to the gas chambers. And various members of the Polish government have said that Auschwitz needs to stop focusing on quote unquote foreign narratives, by which they mean Jewish narratives. They want Auschwitz to be a place of noble Polish suffering. And when you go to Auschwitz now, there is actually a literal gift shop in the car park with little I Heart Poland mugs and I Heart Poland t-shirts because that's just what you want to buy after visiting Auschwitz. And when I went in 2018, I was so amazed by this. I wrote a little column in The Guardian about the, the Auschwitz gift shop in the paper. And I got these angry tweets from Auschwitz. And I thought, God's sake, Auschwitz. Haven't from, you done, from Auschwitz, from, from, music, official, from the Auschwitz, actual Auschwitz tick, memorial yeah. blue tick thing. I thought, haven't you done enough to my family? You don't have to reprimand me on Twitter. Is this <laughs> progress? Is this what happens over a century? You kill one member of my family, and then you tell me off on Twitter. And they were saying, it's not our gift shop. It's run by the local municipality. And I just thought, that does not make it 
better that it's run by the local government, that the local government thinks that Auschwitz is a sign of great Polish strength and Polish memorialism. It's not. It's a, it's a tragic sight. It doesn't make anyone want to buy an iHeart Poland magnet. No, why not? Now, you've been writing this book for... This is so long. It's so embarrassing. I'm like the Robert Caro of my family. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. So, I, I mean, the research took it's 18 years. There's quite a lot years. of research in it, isn't there? It, it is. I, mean, I mean, you're all over the place. I, know. Really. <laughs> I do go all over. I wasn't I, telling you off. No, no, no. I feel, I feel like I don't wear my research lightly. I sort of worry about that. But I, I've spent 18 years researching it. And I've, I feel like I need to add this. Three of those years were just waiting for the Picasso archives to open in Paris. So I feel I should take three years off of that. But, but it's still 18 years research. 18 months writing so but in the course of that I'm wondering how your your sense of it of the 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 importance of the project and of you know how you were were approaching it sort of changed because in the course of that time anti-semitism has become you know kind of a thing I mean not (laughs) not that it ever went away It Obviously. has become a thing. You know, it's, but the oldest hatred has become a thing again. It's but it's a in, hot topic. It's become in vogue. It's um, true, it's true. I mean, did that start to change the way you were approaching the book? Did it feel more urgent or did it feel like what you were learning here was something that you were feeding into your rouse, say, without yeah. on Twitter? I think it was, I think there's the latter, definitely. It, it definitely, um, it made me probably more combative in columns in the paper. I mean, most of the writing of this was done during the whole anti-Semitism row in Labour. And I probably did feel it maybe a bit more strongly than I would have if I hadn't been so immersed in this book. I mean, I've written about anti-Semitism before. I mean, I've been writing this book for so long, but, you know, I'd written about attacks in Paris and stuff like that before. But especially during the writing of this book, it it made me so angry seeing some stuff in labor and and seeing people uh, on the left kind of defending it, excusing it. People like Ken Loach saying, you know, Holocaust history, everything's up for debate. All that kind of stuff made me made me very upset. And and it's funny, the book coming out now with the Tory party saying, you know, we're cracking down on unskilled immigrants entering the country. And, you know, I, I think, you know, like my great uncles, my grandmother, they were unskilled immigrants coming into Poland. They didn't have any money. So you sort of see repetitions of history that you wouldn't have necessarily. And also, of course, the Trump election. You know, I was working on this during his early years and the Muslim ban in America hit me and these are repetitions of things in America as well the Johnson yeah, you talk, Act. You talk actually about how there was a particular book which I can't cut a name but you'll remember it which in the yeah. 20s in America was the sort of ur text for you know, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic feeling. Absolutely. And, and the author goes and meets Hitler. Uh, goes and meets Hitler and was also praised strongly by Teddy Roosevelt. And he then inspired the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act. Madison Grant. Yeah. Madison Grant, yeah. So Madison Grant was this eugenicist who had this idea that certain races were superior to others. And the main ones, obviously, you know, and surprisingly, inevitably, with these kind of people, was Northern European. And Southern European were kind of dirty and diseased. And Eastern European, you definitely didn't want those. And Asian, God forbid. So he really inspired um, these two immigration acts that completely cut down the Jewish immigrants who were coming into New York. And the the numbers, the fallen numbers, is really astonishing. It was, you know, it was going from like 100,000 one year to 20,000 the next. And it was because of these acts that Anne Frank and her family couldn't leave uh, Amsterdam and weren't able to escape. So it's, a, it's the other end of the... Absolutely, and it also shows that America... part of the process. You know, America is hardly perfect. As much as America likes to style itself sometimes as this great saviour of immigrants, I mean, it was pretty bad too. And the anti-Semitism in America, when my grandfather was growing up in the Lower East Side, is very, very similar to the anti-Semitism in Paris that, that my uncles were experiencing then in the 30s. And my father was born in America, and even when he went to college in the 50s, there was still a very tight quota on the number of Jews admitted every year. I mean, he got into that 10% 
that were allowed in that year. It's extraordinary. Yeah. But your your father has has some of Alex in him, judging by his story from his school days. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. That, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's equal parts. I think Alex and his father. Um, my father is, and I say this with full objectivity. He is a very very brilliant man. He is like bilingual in seven languages. He, yeah, you know, he he's I'm eight, sure he heptilingual. Uh, yeah, he's heptilingual, exactly. <laughs> he um, you know, he's eighty years old. He reads more than I do. He remembers everything. I mean, it's quite intimidating having my dad in some ways. I mean, my dad could have written this book much better than me. But when he was at school, he was at this little, um, what we call public school, what you call state school in Long Island. And he had taught himself to read at the age of four. And, you know, the other kids in his class were still learning at eight. And he would get really bored and he would read ahead while everybody else was doing the at on the mat. And he would read ahead. And the teacher kept telling him else, saying, Ronald, stop reading ahead. And the teacher clipped him on the head. And my father stood up at the age of eight and punched her in the stomach. And um, the teacher insisted that my father was, use the term that they used in the 40s in Long Island, mentally retarded. And so the school then tested his IQ and it went off the charts. It was the highest IQ they'd ever had in the school. And so on the back of that, my grandmother moved them out of this tiny little pokey town into a bit, a bit a better town with a better school. And then my father went on to Lehigh. And ironically, you know, I didn't even put this in the book. It's another like avenue I could have gone down. But in my father's class with him was Donald Trump's older brother. And Donald used to come up and visit all the time and hang out. I mean, Donald was like 16, I guess. I think Donald Trump's probably like five years younger than my dad. And he was like 16, and my dad was like 19. And he just remembers this really bratty, red-haired kid who used to come up and try to pinch all the female teachers' butts. Please, <laughs> 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 change. Exactly, it began. And what's... You know, as you were writing this, were you conscious of the sort of reaction of the members of your family who survive you know of digging up things that maybe they didn't want known about yes yes is the is the short answer I was very aware and in a way it made Jack the easiest to write about because he had no descendants I think my my father was worried I was going to find out that Alex was a collaborate a collaborator nobody was ever saying don't do this I think if anything they're saying why is it taking you so bloody long can you just write this damn book already but there were things that people were concerned about and obviously in a family everybody wants to tell their version of the story um and uh, I gave my father, obviously, you know, approval rights when I finished the manuscript. And there were only one or two tiny things that he thought I hadn't got quite right. And it wasn't anything major. It was more about what his grandmother was, his mother was like when they were in Long Island. But I was aware, of really, not really of people alive, I was aware of the people dead. I mean, you know, I was looking through photos that they'd never expected me to see, let alone publish to the world. And I mean, a real obvious example of that is I found these photos that Henri took of him and Sonia when they were courting. And Sonia's like taking off an item of clothing. Sonia is Henri's wife. wife. Yes. So this is when they were dating, and the last photo ends with her like wearing this very skimpy top and lying on bed on a bed with her legs spread. It's very very sexy, and I thought, is this something that they would want me to look at, let alone put in a book? And I knew my great aunt Sonia, and she was, you know, she was a firecracker. And I think I just kind of thought, you know what? She probably would. <laughs> yeah, she was. She's there was this kind of thing that was never quite explained. She and Alex absolutely loathed each other. Why was that? Did you honest yes. get to the bottom of that? Well, first of all, Alex saw Henry, who is his oldest older brother, as basically his father. He was a paternal figure. And, and Alex was like the kind of son who thought no stepmother was good enough. No woman was ever good enough for Henri. And particularly Sonia, who came from what is now the Ukraine, he just saw her as this kind of 
dirt, what he would call a dirty Polak is how he referred to her, even though it was the Ukraine. You know, she was short. She and he was, he was Polish. And he yeah. was Polish. I mean, there was a lot of self-loathing there. And she looked a lot like him. She was short. She was round. She was really bullshy. She was really smart. I mean, in a lot of ways, she was exactly like Alex. And in some ways, they were too similar. For Sonia's part, she looked at Alex and thought he was this uneducated, coarse snob. And, you know, there are probably arguments for that. You know, he had never really gone to school. Sonia had, had gone, had had an upper class upbringing, really, when she was a child. She'd had this aristocratic nanny. She'd gone through school. She was very, very smart and educated and cultured. She just thought Alex was just this idiot. Alex just looked at her and just thought, you are not good enough for my brother. He should be with a French model. And they never, ever made up. They lived, you know, two miles away from each other their whole life. They absolutely hated each other. And when Henry died, Sonia was obviously at the funeral. It's her husband. And Alex turns up and just starts screaming at her and said, it's your fault he died. And the ironies of that are so layered. First of all, it was Sonia who saved Henry's life multiple times during the war. It was her who sorted out his false identity. It was, it was really her who kept them hidden. It was her who found them food on the black market. And the weird thing is, he, I feel like Alex was actually confusing Sonia with Jacques' wife. Jacques' wife, Mila, was dumb, was sort of very passive and useless. And she is the one who told Alex, uh, t- told Jacques, sorry, to um, register as a Jew. And when Jacques was given permission to leave the camp to visit their newborn child, she's the one who told him he had to go back because he promised. So she... That is the kind of killer moment. Oh, it's incredible. It? I mean, she said, il a donné sa parole. He gave his word. And so Jacques goes back the bro- to the camp. We should set the scene. The so, brothers are in the room. In the hospital. Like, You're out! You're out. Run away. Run. Run away. We will hide you. And no one was ever given permission mission to leave Pitivier. It's incredible that Jacques was. I went to the Pitivier archives, this amazing museum in France called Cercile, which has their day-to-day records and everything, which is how I was able to recreate Jacques' life. And the woman there was just, this is incredible. I've never seen anyone get leave, you know, like this. And I think the guards let Jacques leave because they trusted him. He was so passive and compliant that they knew he would come back. Jacques leaves. He goes to Paris. He's in the hospital. The brothers are saying, this is the chance of your lifetime. We will help you. Sonia said, I can find an apartment for you. I can find food for you. We will hide you in your daughter and your wife and Mila his wife is lying there on the bed and she said il a donné sa parole he has to go back and Jack does and he goes back to the camp he's then three months later put on the train to Auschwitz along with Irene Nemirovsky who wrote Sweet Frances and he's killed and so Mila killed Jack Sonia never killed Henry but in Alex's mind the two women were basically conflated and there's this terrible thing Sarah says I think because Auschwitz was so close to Galicia whenever she's asked about him yeah she goes he's, they sent him home and he, I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, Jacques never wanted to leave. He just wanted to have this quiet life. He's sort of forced to France. He lives in France, tries to make his life there, has a wife and child. And in the end, he's sent back to his home. And he dies just 18 kilometers from where his father is buried. It's, it's a really kind of amazing story. Let's send him home. Um, maybe we should end there. Adley Freeman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.